you know, my guess when you saw your first Axe advertisement, you probably didn't say to yourself, I wonder who made that. I bet you he's going to be the CMO of the New York Times one day. <laughs> hey, 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 what is going on, futurists? This is your captain speaking, Michael Sakond, the founder and creator of Our Future. We're a business media brand delivering exclusive insights and career advice to you, the listener, so you can go and unlock your future. Just wanna make clear the content format going forward. On Monday, you're gonna be hearing from a legendary business leader. On Wednesday, you'll learn from a student who is embarking upon their dream career. And on Fridays, you'll get inspired by young entrepreneurs who are changing the world really early on in their lives. Today is Monday, so I'm bringing on a business powerhouse, a marketing master, and that is Mr. David Rubin the chief marketing officer of the New York Times. David's had a legendary career in marketing and storytelling, starting everything off when he helped unlock the iconic Axe deodorant brand on digital channels, making me wanna pull up to that middle school dance, smelling like a million bucks. After his time at Unilever, which owns Axe, he became head of global brand at $44 billion social media company, Pinterest. And of course, now he is stewarding one of the most respected and trusted brands into its next chapter. This interview happened before pro-Trump supporters in an egregious show of democratic disregard stormed Capitol Hill. So we don't touch on that, but this is a fantastic conversation. Let's get it. Let's go back in time to when you were at Yale. You're a history major and your focus was in the 1880s or something. I mean, some of the most exciting classes I've taken at Michigan have been in Middle East history, but the later stuff. So the fall of Mosaddegh and, uh, you know, when the CIA came and destroyed everything in that kind of a beautiful part of the earth. But how important do you think those skills are like reading, writing, critical analysis? I feel like uh, how do you how do you think that kind of played into the way you kind of grew up as a leader in business? The actual topic is not something I use very often, um, uh, but the the idea of having huge volumes of work with mm -hmm. lots of opinions um, and perspectives and needing to sift through all that and tell my own story um, that is different than the stories that others are telling, you know, so you're not plagiarizing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, uh, that skill is something I use every day. Um, and so the, you know, just the ability to kind of keep an open mind, look at the data, consume a whole lot, but then also turn that into something that's useful and that propels you forward. That isn't just data for data's sake. And I, so I, I value that part, you know, it's the basic humanities kind of philosophy. Absolutely. So I'm going to fast forward here to the time you spent over at Unilever. You were instrumental in launching Axe. And I just have to tell you, I was growing up I was just kind of getting older, kind of in middle school, um, you know, when I learned about Axe and it was so cool, like the marketing and like me and my friends would joke like, oh, like, we're Axe, like go to the school dance, like all the girls are going to love us. When did that idea pop into your head that you could make deodorant and body wash? It, it could give, bestow this power onto young men. Axe uh, or Lynx, as it's called in a couple of countries um, mm -hmm. in the UK and Australia. Yeah, in Australia is a is a 1980s product that started in uh, I think it started in France in maybe 83 or something. The idea behind Axe is that everyone knows that deodorants work. And, you know, that had been 50 years of deodorant marketing. Um, and the reality is, like there were brands that were claiming there was one brand claiming it had 36 hours of protection. 
Like, I don't know who they thought they were speaking to, but like, is that for people degree. who don't shower? Right. Well, it wasn't degree, but, but that wasn't degree, but, um, but, but degree was in that, in that vein, you know, it's like, they're speaking to people who don't shower for two days. I like, I don't know who they're, who they're trying to appeal to. And 36 hours was going to be followed by 40, which would be right. Exactly. Which would be followed by 44 and, you know, like no consumer cares. And so the idea behind acts was, there's a group of people who what they care about is how they're perceived by others. Mm-hmm. And that thought then tran- then then allows you to sort of talk about what the thing does for you, how it changes your life, not what's in the product itself, you know? And that opens up all the advertising you see from Max because what they're what what it's what it's then advertising is that it's gonna make others notice you. So I want to make a connection here. People have always bought their deodorant, they've always honed up the dollars to, to buy it every month or every few weeks or so, or maybe more than that. Uh, in terms of journalism and the online environment, uh, people aren't used to paying for that. And I just want to get straight to the big challenge that you have as a marketer, right? So the New York Times gets, you know, over 100 million page visits, you know, impressions, what have you a month. But there's around 7 million subscribers who actually pay for the service as of your, your quarter three results. Uh, and your 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 guys's task is to convert more and more of those kind of digital nomads to paying loyal subscribers of the brand. If we if we don't focus only on the young audience, it isn't true that people didn't pay for the news. I mean, there used to be 60 million households with the newspaper subscription mm-hmm. in the U.S. alone. We do believe that 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 the idea that you might have to pay for news is not an impossible idea. And you're absolutely right. You know, there's. 180, 185 million people in the U.S. alone who consume digital news and 20 to 30 that pay for it. Imagine if, you know, one in seven people who ate a hamburger paid for one and everybody else got them for free. Imagine (laughs) what your what your what the restaurant business would look like. Right. And so bringing my consumer product background, I see this as a category creation job, much more so than like a 150 year old business. How do you sustain it? kind of thing. We're trying to create a behavior that doesn't really exist. It's starting to look at our growth rates, you know, um, but we have to really explain to people why. And the good news is things are working in our favor. I think people are realizing ever since 2015, 2016, that social media or the, yeah, I call the, the publication of just whatever's in my feed doesn't really get you quality understanding. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not you have to be very careful about the the veracity of that information that you're getting. And I think people weren't really attuned to that until the last four or five years. Uh, secondly, I think people are very interested and worried about where the world is going, whether that's climate, whether it's covid, whether it's uh, whether it's the racial awakening, um, just you know, people are really worried about what's going on in the world. And in those were in those moments, they turn to greater understanding. They turn to news sources that they trust. They also are willing to sort of dive in a little harder, not just read the headlines. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think all of that is lending people to realize that you get the news you pay for. Why is sort of paid for by advertising not going to sustain the industry? The answer is two things. One is first party original reporting is super expensive. It takes quality professionals. It takes a lot of them. You know, you can't just flights regurgitate to flights around the world. You have to go look at you. Know, you have to go confirm it yourself. you got to double check it, triple check it, quadruple check it. You've got to, you know, 
people aren't just telling you one story. There are multiple people telling you lots of stories. Yeah. Um, you have to get sources on the record. If you're talking about, you know, um, uh, exposing uh, the wrongdoings of power, right? And generally those people are not just letting you know what happened, right? If you look at the amount of reporting that had to go into exposing Harvey Weinstein's misdeeds, for example. And so that's very expensive. And on top of that, you've got what's happening in the digital ad market, you know, which is that all of the, most of the value of that advertising is going to the platforms. It's a long road ahead, but New York Times is positioned above all the other media companies to be able to, or news companies, to be able to do this. I mean, deep-rooted history, you know, real trust, real authenticity uh, with the readers. I kind of want to get a taste of the environment at the New York Times. So when you joined, it was 2016. That was crazy year, crazy election cycle. I was actually a, a I was sorry, a high school journalist. I was going into the polls and I was reporting and I was interviewing people from there. I remember several people telling me, oh, there's no journalists allowed the polls. False. Uh, anyhow, uh, you're it's now 2020. We're in another election season and things are remote. I assume that you're not kind of working at the New York Times offices full time. What was it like going through the a monumental every four years news cycle without that rush of being in the office? Things are crazy. It's wild. Like, how did that differ? And, and, and did you still feel some of that energy or was it much more muted? Uh, no, definitely felt the energy for sure. Um, I mean, there's certainly nothing like being around the newsroom. And, you know, the real thing about The New York Times is these are, you know, the best in the world at what they do and watching the best in the world do something um, is always exciting, I think. Mm -hmm. um, um, Olympics, like the Olympics. Totally, totally. <laughs> um, uh, I once took a tour of Pixar and it's like the most fascinating thing you could ever do. Oh, Pixar you know? awesome. just, I've talked to people. Yeah, just what how they run that process and like experience like, and, and I've talked to people from Pixar as well, but there's nothing like standing in the building, at least when they were all there and like feeling that energy, the same thing's true for us. Um, uh, that being said, that's just not possible right now. You know, we, we, we um, I don't know the exact number, but we, we probably had a hundred people in the office, give or take um, on election night uh, this year. Um, and that was the largest number that had been in our building since March. Got it. Um, and, uh, um, you know, and uh, and so it just wouldn't have been the same thing as four years ago. Um, you know, that being said, we've made the transition to, um, you know, the, this forced remote working um, pretty well, I think. Um, you know, our, our, if we look at the two parts of the Times, the newsroom is doing the best journalism they've done. Uh, uh, and it's totally remarkable. And it's absolutely amazing how they're pulling that off with, you know, a lot of their regular mechanisms being uprooted by not being face-to-face -face, um, uh, and, and covering some of the largest stories of the, you know, of this millennium uh, and covering them all effectively. You know, we have all these major things happening at once, the election, COVID, mm -hmm. uh, racial wow. awakening, all happening. I mean, in normal times, any one of those would be like taught in journalism schools for, for decades. Uh, and we have all three happening at the same time while we're not in the office. Yeah, it's amazing. You guys have prevailed through this, all this stuff going on. I mean, how do you, I mean, I, that's another question. Like, how do you apportion the, the resources to go to each one? And, you know, what's going to be the most relevant to your audience? You know, it's, it's, it's crazy stuff to think about newsrooms as business strategy units for content. Like, you know, all these for-profit media companies, right, are, they have these paying subscribers and they want to, to deliver to their audience what they want to hear, right? I mean, 
for example, you know, it, it doesn't make sense for a Breitbart, for example, to make uh, Trump look bad. Um, and probably the opposite at, you know, at, at uh, New York Times. Yeah, I think that w- one thing to keep in mind is, you know, our newsroom really does run separately from the business side. And um, we do make decisions that we being not me, um, the, you know, the, okay. the editor in chief, Dean McKay and his team um, make decisions about how what co- the coverage strategy independent of the business realities. Historically, it was set up to separate advertiser interests mm-hmm. from news interests in the in a subscription driven world. It's exactly what you talked about is, you know, ultimately you as a consumer, as a subscriber, what you want from the Times is an understanding that you're getting the news that matters, that we're following the facts wherever they may lead, that we're, we're not following, you know, we're not thinking on, on, a, on a political agenda or, a, or, or, or bringing bias into the work. And the best way to do that is to make sure that we have an independent newsroom that's driven by the individual journalism, journalists, and by the stories that they're, that, you know, by the news as it happens. Uh, that also happens to be the best thing for our business because the best journalism is the best outcome for our business. The question a lot of brands are asking, and one that I'm kind of in a unique position to 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 probe into, is that all these legacy brands are like, how are we going to reach Gen Z? For example, you know, these brands that our parents admire, our parents read, you know, at the coffee table every morning, uh, that are the cars our parents drive. Are those going to mean anything to us in the future? So I guess my next question is, you know, how are you how how, how much of your day to day is thinking about reaching people who are our age, who are listening to this podcast. We believe in the importance of, of news and information to society. Like we're a mission driven company. Um, and we believe that people want and need to understand the world uh, in order for society to be, to be healthy, a democratic society at least. We think about in all cases, how do we offer our journalism in a way that helps um, in a way that meets con- readers where they are, you know, it's built for how you want to consume it, not the content, but the the vehicle. And so that's why we've been pushing into podcasts. That's why you see the daily, yeah. the daily which is one of the largest podcasts in the, in the country, in the world. Um, if you, um, uh, uh, why the investment that we have in visual journalism, you know, the, I don't know if you saw the, the type of infographic we did around uh, when Notre Dame, um, caught on fire. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, was, I, I don't think you would have, I, I, my, my personal view is that if you didn't see that infographic, you don't really understand how close that fire came to taking the cathedral down. And we're able to tell that story. You look at some of the graphics and data visualizations we've been doing around COVID and that have led people to realize, um, the, the disproportionate impacts that the virus has had on, communities of color and disadvantaged, uh, historically disadvantaged um, communities. That information has come from the way we're serving up our information. Um, and that stuff, that visual appeal is, is totally appealing to a younger audience. Interestingly, we found that when the, that the Daily, uh, our podcast, recruits a younger audience, but once they start listening, they're actually more likely to read. The, the traditional okay. read and subscribe. So it's like more likely top, to come like a, to the digital. It's like a top of funnel then for, for the greater ecosystem. It doesn't have to be the case that once they get exposed to our journalism, they would go consume it out of audio, but they are. And so I think what it is, is it's about 
It's about finding a way to feel relevant, just like it is for any brand. And then exposing people once they once they come into the community to more and more to more and more of what's available. Uh, the graphics are important. We're very visual species, us young people. Uh, so I suppose I suppose the, uh, the the final thing is, what's your piece of career advice to to a young professional who's maybe in the middle of college, who's about to graduate college? What would you tell them? You know, my guess when you saw your first Axe advertisement, you probably didn't say to yourself, I wonder who made that. I bet you he's going to be the CMO of The New York Times one day. <laughs> um, just guess it. Um, uh, I didn't either at the time. And I think the, um, my point is, is like, I think there's a big part of serendipity you were sort of getting to this in your comment. Like, I think my point is, is kind of find what you like to do functionally, but don't feel confined by like needing to plot out every moment of it. And don't feel confined by traditional definitions of industry. I think it's perfectly acceptable and possible to move across those things as long as you bring something to each job that people know you're good at. Ultimately, particularly if we're talking about marketing, um, it's about telling your own story. Um, uh -huh. And just like with a good story, that story may morph and change as it goes along. It doesn't have to be plotted out when you start it. But so there needs to be a through line. But that through line is, is you know, the, the sort of the details around that through line can change all the time. And so that's just give yourself permission to that, I guess. Ladies and gentlemen, that was David Rubin, chief marketing officer of the New York Times, sharing stories and incredible insights from his awesome career as a marketer. He's one of the best on the planet. So thank you so much for listening to this interview and would greatly appreciate a review on Apple Podcasts to help the show grow and gain more credibility. And I can't wait to come back at you on Wednesday. So stay frosty, everybody.